Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma stream. And we're getting more professional now. Instead of welcoming Chris to help, I'm welcoming Olivia, Chris, and Max. Olivia is taking over Chris's role today. I don't know if that's a permanent thing or what's happening, but Chris is here as a moderator and Max is here as a moderator and Olivia is presenting the questions. And Max and Chris, I think, are also helping to organize the questions. So again, we've moved into a little bit more of a formal setup as well. We're going to spend some time talking about a topic, and then we'll move ahead into the question and answer a little bit later on. But at this point, you can say what you want in chat, as long as it's mindful, thoughtful, kind. You can also start posting questions now once we start the Q&A session or portion of the session. We'll only allow questions in the chat. And once we've finished with that, you can go back to saying things. So today's topic is Buddhist medicine. That's just the topic of my talk. doesn't mean your questions have to be about Buddhist medicine. It's just what I'm going to talk about. Seems apropos. Clearly medicine and sickness is a hot topic these days. We spent the last eight months or so talking about, worrying about, dealing with a pandemic, a time when a lot of people are getting sick, dying, from from a, a single virus no. and so it's a it's a hot topic I had one read one Buddhist saying that we shouldn't be concerned with it at all and that this is just a lot of fear-mongering in the world and as Buddhists we should be unconcerned we should realize that sickness is something that is out of our control and not think about it at all. Which I think is reckless. I talked about this before, but it seems to me that that's reckless on, on a couple of different levels. So I'd like to talk about Buddhist medicine. When we When we use the term... Probably if you Google this, you're going to see something quite different from what most of this talk is going to be about. 
Buddhist medicine is uh, mostly equated with traditional medicine in Buddhist cultures. And and I don't argue that you could actually that you could call that Buddhist medicine. In fact, I think actually you probably could call it Buddhist medicine. It's just not really the be-all, end-all of the topic. It's not the most important meaning behind the term. But as people, this is, uh, as as worldling, worldlings, people living in the world with all of our concerns and attachments, this is what we focus on. We focus on traditional medicines. We focus on um, modern scientific medicines, physical medicines. We focus on physical cures to things like viruses. We focus on vaccines, pills. And in fact, there is some pretty strong precedent for suggesting that all of this is in line with the Buddhist teaching. Anyone who says that we shouldn't take medicine and that the Buddha would have never taken medicine or never told his monks to take medicine, that sickness is part of the uncontrollable, impermanent, unpredictable nature of life. But what you have to understand, I mean, first of all, there's a difference between practical living and meditation practice. And second of all, those aren't good things. Impermanence is not considered to be a good thing. It's considered to be a very bad thing. Non-self, the inability to control. It's not as though we want to encourage them. They are, they are inherent in every experience. It's true. But they are not a, a, a way to live your life. When we live our life, we spend a lot of time dealing with impermanence, not trying to control it or make it not happen, but really trying to work around it. Impermanent suffering and non-self. And, and being aware of these things should, should dictate our, our response when we get sick. Of course the Buddha would take medicine. And of course he would tell his monks to take medicine. And so all these Buddhist medicines out there, I mean, some of them I think must be on par with other traditional medicines, and so there's nothing wrong with them. They're they're perfectly valid and proper to take. The Buddha seemed to be fairly seemed to have been fairly ambivalent about it in the sense that take in the sense of, of not being too concerned about which medicine one takes. Because he said, whatever is considered a medicine in in, in locally, you know, in the world. What is, what is agreed upon as a medicine, consider that to be a medicine. 
That's what he said. So what I would say is Buddhists creating medicines is not a Buddhist thing to do. What I mean by that is it's it's a thing people should do and worldly people, you know, people of all sorts get involved in, but it's not particularly a Buddhist practice. You could say it's about helping people. That's valid. Helping people is a Buddhist practice. But what I mean is when we start thinking of the curing of disease as somehow a practice on the path or like like worrying about our own diseases and trying to find the right medicine for our sickness. The Buddha said just take what people take. Don't go fussing about finding something better or finding the perfect medicine. It's like food. You can worry about your diet all, all you want, but you're just going to make yourself mentally sick. It's going to distract you from the present moment from the real practice and the real path. So I would say that monks distributing medicine and creating medicine, there's something very wrong with that. Monks acting as doctors. Or maybe I shouldn't say that. It's, it's, it's something you see monks do. It's not proper, but some people think it is proper. There are fairly famous monks who engage in this, so... We'll just have a difference of opinion there, and I'm not trying to start an argument, but it is definitely something improper. Because, but that's because monks have to toe the line. You're 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 ordaining as sort of a promise the intention to to stick to the the path, you know. So whereas lay Buddhists making and distributing medicine is perfectly fine. A monk has to be an emissary of the Dhamma. What you give to people has to be only the Dhamma. It just gets... Um, it loses the, the power and the potential otherwise. I mean, there's a lot of issues. If you start giving medicine, what really happens is people come to you for medicine and ignore any monk who teaches meditation no, I just want to go see the monk who's going to give me medicine. But to be clear, I think we can talk about Buddhist medicine in the sense that med it's medicine that Buddhists take. It's medicine that the Buddha allowed us to take. Like non-Buddhist medicine would be alcohol. There are some cures that involve alcohol. There's lots of medicine that is steeped in alcohol. That's not allowed for a Buddhist in Thailand even, there's some very good medicine that I used to take until I realized it had alcohol in it. Very good for your stomach. But it's not the alcohol that's good for your stomach, it's just what they put it in. So you have to find a version without alcohol. And that's not because it's not necessarily medicine, it's just not Buddhist medicine, because there are other issues with it, obviously. If medicine involves eating live animals for some reason, that would not be a Buddhist medicine. I can't imagine that, though.
I once had a student who who wasn't able to practice the eight precepts because she said she had stomach issues, ulcers, I think, an elderly woman. And so I I, encur- I suggested to her that, well, in the Buddha's time, there were people who had problems with their stomach, and the Buddha suggested that they take butter. And this is what I would take when... Uh, I took it when I would fly to Asia, and with the time difference, you couldn't eat for sometimes almost 24 hours, and just to calm the stomach, take a little butter. So I suggested that to her. She didn't want to because she said it was high cholesterol. And so finally she was practicing and I had her practice. She was practicing very intensely, intensively. And she sent me a message. I wish it was the time where I said, you can't leave your room. You practice only in your room and someone will bring you food. And she sent a message through the person who sent, brought her food. She said, Please let me have something to eat. It was in the evening. And so I sent her a couple of packets of butter. And in the morning she was quite surprised. She came to see me in the morning. She said she couldn't believe it. Just it, it calmed her stomach right down. Now I'm not trying to be a doctor or suggest that people should use this as a as a I don't really know enough to to prescribe medicines like that, but I can suggest them based on what the Buddha said, and the point is not that. The point is that even the Buddha had some suggestions. And so I didn't send her butter because that's not allowed. I had someone send her butter. What monks are allowed to do, and this is why I could probably get away with that, if someone is living in the monastery and falls ill, then we're allowed to give them medicine. But otherwise, we're only allowed to give medicine to our family members. Anyway, so this is the idea of physical medicine. It's, it has a place, and so what I wanted to say is people are getting concerned often about vaccines and so on, and I think a very Buddhist response is just to go with the flow. If there's reliable scientific research and advice saying that medicine is good to take, take the vaccine, take the medicine. I don't see that a vaccine is any different. I got a flu vaccine this year. It seems like a very Buddhist thing to do. It's just what people do. But that's not really the point of this talk. So I've talked a lot about that. In Buddhism, medicine is mind medicine, heart medicine. Medicine for the heart and not the physical heart. But the real heart medicine medicine for a broken heart, medicine for a broken mind. And and medicine of the mind, medicine of the heart, because meditation practice has a real benefit on a physical side as well. So much stress and tension is relieved through practice, high blood pressure, headaches, 
the long-term effects of, medit of meditation have to be incredibly beneficial. I mean, we don't have studies about this, but people who practice intensively, all other things considered, who practice regularly, all other things being equal are going to be a lot healthier. You can feel it. You can feel the cleansing power physically. So meditation isn't just simply something that affects the mind, but the effects on the mind have a great effect on the body. Another thing you could say, the effect of meditation in a physical realm, and this is sort of going against that idea that, that we can't do anything about a pandemic, We can't do anything about sickness in the world. Sickness in general. Meditation doesn't just fix your sicknesses, but there's so much sickness in the world, and I'm just talking about physical sickness, that would be alleviated through the practice of meditation. And we talk about simply the organization required to uh, run hospitals, to hand out medicine, but also sicknesses that come from food, sexually transmitted diseases, I guess you could include that in there. But illnesses that, uh, food is, is a big one, right? Apparently this pandemic, you could you could argue that a reliance on eating meat has caused a lot of sicknesses. Not just uh, obesity and, and heart disease and diabetes and so on, but bacteria. The Buddha said before, before the killing of cows, and I don't know if this is an accurate quote, but this is what we have quoted. I don't know if this is even right. But it's an interesting concept. Before the killing of cows, there were only three sicknesses in the world. And with the killing of cows, over a hundred new diseases sprung up. We have that a quote of the Buddha. So the practice of ethics, the practice of mindfulness, the cultivation of wisdom. If we all if there was wisdom in the world, the more wisdom there is in the world the greater will be the physical health just because of our harmony and our organization, our ability to work together, to support each other. You know, there wouldn't be all this fighting over how to cure things, what is the cause of things. If we could only get our act together. Beyond that, before we even get into the effects on the mind, there's another way that meditation supports physical health. Physical health and future lives. Future lives have a special place in Buddhism. The effects, and this is when, when most people think of karma, they think about past life karma. It's not the only karma. It's not really the basis of the understanding of karma. But it is 
quite it is more powerful you can say or or exceptionally powerful remarkably powerful because of things you've done in your past life you can be born sick you can be born with a underlying condition you can be born with muscular dystrophy multiple sclerosis i guess i think uh, als I don't know all, all the with genetics. You're born with various predispositions, diabetes and so on, heart disease. And that's because of the power of the mind. The power of the mind to condition the rebirth and to condition the development even of the fetus. Now you think about the nine months or so that we spend in the womb with the mind completely out of its out of out of sorts, having lost all connection with the past life. Imagine the experience and, and what it's like to forget everything. Because you don't remember anything, not usually. Imagine those nine months for someone who is mentally in a bad state. So a lot of people have trouble believing in future lives well unfortunate for them but that if you do for those of you who are open to it and i'm not saying you have to be it's not really all that important it can be quite powerful and it's an important thing to think about but this isn't why we practice meditation none of this is and it has to be acknowledged that at the end of the day we do have to be mindful of illness and acknowledge the fact that it's a part of life we don't have to ignore it or um, refrain from attending to it we should attend to sickness just as we attend to the body the hunger in the body hunger is the buddha said hunger is the greatest sickness i mean you have Hunger is something you can never get rid of, but you have to tend to it. Anytime we get sick, we should attend to it mindfully. It's one, medicine is one of the four requisites for monks, if you needed any other proof. But when in the practice of meditation, our focus is on mental illness. And anyone who's dealt with a severe mental illness can certainly tell you that it's the more problematic of the two. A person can live a full and happy life with a chronic illness, physical illness. But even moderate mental illness is going to cripple you in a way that physical illness never could. And that's important to see because people with physical disability often uh, give rise to mental illness. And by mental illness, I don't mean how the word, the term is used in a worldly sense. It doesn't just refer to people who are diagnosed by a doctor because, of course, that's arbitrary. We all have mental illness. We are ill in our minds. Our minds are unhealthy. 
That's why we practice meditation. And through the cultivation of meditation, we heal our minds. If you were born, you had sickness. I mean, you had some sort of mental problems. Otherwise, why would you choose this, right? Couldn't you, couldn't you choose something better? No, because we're a little bit mentally ill. But when you're able to separate that and understand and see the physical and the mental and being able to deal with the physical realm and be present and mindful of it is, is incredibly powerful. I mean, it really does for people who have physical illness or people who don't have physical illness. Just becoming present and, and aware of the physical world as we do in mindfulness practice, just watching your stomach rise and fall, watching the foot move, reminding yourself it is what it is, and trying to cultivate this objectivity, this clarity of mind, it has such a profound effect on the mind. You can live with so much physical illness. You can be dying of a crippling illness and still be completely at peace. And that's important because we are all going to die. We're all going to get old, sick, and die. Many of us, many of us will experience. Could you imagine getting this COVID nineteen sickness in in a sort of a, a a bad case of it? If you have a bad case of it, could you imagine die like feeling like you're drowning? I think or. I had dengue once. It was quite an interesting experience. I fainted a couple of times. I was in the hospital for three days. A lot of pain. It can be quite an experience. Quite a learning experience. It shows you your attachments. It shows you your mental illness. So... This is why we do these streams. This this stream, the idea here is to be somewhat of a provider of Buddhist medicine. I'm not going to give you cures for physical illness. But mindfulness and Buddhist practice in general is a great cure for illness. In this time of great concern, worry, fear, there's going to be a lot of increase in risk of mental illness. So we talk about the risk of getting a virus. Much greater is the and much more dangerous is the increased risk of getting a mental illness. Depression, anxiety, panic, fear, anger, a lot of anger in the world now, division, manipulation, greed. This is going to be on the rise. It's at risk of being on the rise. And so this is something that we have to absolutely all of us be concerned with. Don't don't become too obsessed with the physical realm that you miss the more important mental health. Because if you don't take care of your mind, your body isn't going to make any difference. Bodily health will never save you. 
This is why we practice meditation. And honestly, considering how much effort we put into maintaining the body, we all of us should think very carefully of how much effort we put into caring for and tending to the mind. So with that, I have now spoken quite a long time. I assume there are some questions. I know there are. I see them all. Thank you all for posting your questions. At this time, we're going to remove anything. I hope you haven't been doing that yet, but we're going to remove anything that isn't a question. So up until this time, you didn't have to remove anything that wasn't a question. But welcome, Olivia. It's going to be my partner today. And Max and Chris are standby. And you have to turn off spell correct, I think. But I'm ready when you are. What are some ways to deal with isolation and aloneness? Take, take complete advantage of the great opportunity you've been given with it. Be overjoyed at the opportunity you have because it doesn't last. So I, I assume the person asking this is, is impl implying that this is a problem that has to be dealt with, but please consider great things come from being alone. Great things that would be very, very difficult to accomplish if you weren't alone. And so this is a perfect opportunity a rare opportunity that you have. You're, you're a human being, I assume. You are interested in your well-being. That's why you ask these questions. You're maybe concerned and, and acknowledging some mental health issues that you and all of us share. You're trying to better yourself and you're interested in I guess, Buddhism and, and Buddhist meditation. So it's a rare opportunity. On top of that, you've found time to be alone. I assume you're talking about yourself. Take this opportunity to consider cultivating mindfulness. It's not easy. Being alone is not easy. But it's a great and rare opportunity. If you're interested... You can sign up for an at-home course. We have an at-home course. If you, if you haven't read my booklet, maybe try reading that and start practicing. But you could consider doing an at-home meditation course and I could help you with it. We have links and there are links in the description of the video as well. Does having a hindrance poison the mind, making it unwholesome at that very moment? And just a moment later, when you say the note, 
Does the mind become immediately wholesome and pure due to mindfulness? Yeah, that's about accurate. But let's be a little bit clearer that we're talking about very, very fast moments. Like there's so much going on in the mind from moment to moment that it's not it's not quite so categorically simple because it's going to be complicated. Of course, basically you you got the right idea. Just you can't be quite so categorical about it because the mind is complicated and very quick. It's, it's basically what you say, but be aware that just because you do the noting doesn't mean your mind is going to be pure. But it's it's a tool that le leads the mind. It leads the mind towards those wholesome mind states. If done properly. I mean, if if you're actually relating to the object and reminding yourself this is this I have strong thoughts that give me a lot of fear they are very strong and at times give me panic attacks what should I do? So the first thing is to be able to separate the thought and the fear. Be clear that they're two different things. Thoughts really, well, they guess they can be strong in the sense they can be very vivid and, and the mind pays very close attention to them, but they're still just thoughts. So the thoughts don't give you fear, though it's not really, it's not a terrible way to say it, but a better way would be to say you react to the thoughts out of fear, with fear. And instead of doing that, try to react to the thoughts, try to replace that with an objective, a mindful reminding yourself, hey, this isn't scary, this is a thought. And they also don't give you panic attacks as well as either, right? So what happens with a panic attack is the thought uh, triggers in your mind fear. And the fear creates more physical sensations and makes you focus more on the 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 thought. And both the physical sensations of, of anxiety, of panic, and the returning to the thought again and again create a feedback loop. And it snowballs, it becomes it comes out of control until it overwhelms you and there's a panic attack. It's just overwhelming, crippling fear. But that's because of still because of the repeated response, repeated uh, reaction. So if you start reacting differently, you'll see you're undercutting that. You're, you're, you're gun, they say in Thai. You're stopping it, basically. The Buddha said, Yani sotani lokasming satin desang niwarayang. So the, so this was a poetic sort of, he was using, I guess, what is it called? Allegory? No. Analogy? Metaphor. Streams. He said, whatever streams there are in the world, mindfulness is what dams them up. Mindfulness is what blocks them. 
So we use the analogy of water or the metaphor, I guess, of water. The mind is like that. The mind is constantly causing problems. You want to stop those. Mindfulness stops it all. I mean, it's, it's not like you're you're forcing it. You're just replacing it with the, with the correct relationship. It is what it is. That's correct. It isn't bad or good or me or mine. So that's all incorrect. Improper and, and stressful. It causes problems. Can one practice walking meditation while observing whatever occurs in reality, as one would do in sitting or standing meditation? Or should one stick to observing stepping right and stepping left? So you shouldn't do that while you're walking. If you're going to note something, which you should if it really distracts you, you should stop walking, put your feet together, and then start noting the, the alternative. If it's just a stray thought or something that's... Um, you're able to, you know, just a moment distraction. You can just ignore it and continue walking. That's because of, you know, it, it, the problem involved with just being distracted because no matter what, you have to focus on the foot in order to walk. So you're going to be going back and forth anyway. If you're going to note something else, you should stop walking. How do you find balance in striving? What is too extreme? What is too little? I don't, I think if done properly, there's no limit to striving. It's just that we have to think of striving a little bit differently. How do you think of striving? We usually think of it as forcing or pushing ahead. But striving to be mindful every moment there's no limit to that. Sati is, is sabatikang, is always useful. So what happens, the, the striving too much happens because people don't put mindfulness at the front. They'll often use concentration, just focusing your attention, trying to force the mind here or there. But when you understand mindfulness, it becomes all-encompassing and, and relentless. It's relentless effort that, that feels effortless in a sense. Like you don't have to work to, be, to have the energy. You have incredible, perfect energy, but you don't have to work at it. In the beginning, it's a challenge, but it's not about forcing or pushing. It's about again and again being relentless until the habit comes, until you're able to catch things, everything as it comes. In the event that a meditator develops breathing problems due to an illness, how should they adapt the practice to their reduced capacity to breathe properly? Well, we don't focus on the breath, we focus on the rising and falling of the stomach, which is related to the breath, but as long as you are breathing, you should be able to feel the stomach rise and fall. If you can't feel it, just put your hand on your stomach. I don't know if you read our booklet, but you might consider reading that. 
if you're interested in how we practice. Usually when I'm doing sitting meditation, I get the feeling that my body unifies. I get a more homogenous feeling of it, so to speak. How should I notice this sensation? It's just a feeling, just say feeling, feeling. It's important that you never put any um, extra meaning or significance on your experiences. So with things like this, it sounds like something that maybe seems there's a a suspicion that it might be significant in some way. It's not. So you can remind yourself all the time, this is not that. Because whatever this is, it's not that which, which we're looking for. If it's a this, it's not that. That may be hard to understand if you're not so versed on, on what we're talking about. But to be clear, nothing will be that. There's no thing you could that could arise that is that what we're looking for is actually something that doesn't arise but that putting that aside be clear that the feeling is just a feeling and that's the that's that's the whole point of the practice because our all of our problems come from giving things significance in one way or another this is a problem this is a solution this is good this is bad our way of looking at things is always skewed in terms of like a utilitarian what can i get out of this what should I do with this? A problem-solving approach. This isn't really a problem-solving approach that we're using. We're trying to just see things as they are, experience things. With, these are experiences that are to be understood, not problems to be solved. But you're, you're not asking about that. You're asking about it. What should you do with it? You should note it as feeling. you like it or dislike it, you would also notice that. I will be starting a new job in January that will make me more exposed to COVID with lots of transportation. As the date approaches, I have become increasingly fearful of becoming sick and bringing sickness to my family. The fear reaches its critical point in meditation, and I struggle to finish my sessions and remain mindful. Any advice? So this is apropos of what I was talking about. The, the fear is is something that you have to get rid of. I mean, that, that is um, going, you know, that is the way of relating to sickness that is improper. You shouldn't be afraid of sickness. You shouldn't be afraid of anything because, of course, the fear doesn't help. So be clear about that in your mind, that, that you, you've, you've responded incorrectly. That's all that is. It's not, it's not an inevitable... Um, and it's not that you should then decide that you're just going to ignore illness at all. Actually, everything else is correct. Being concerned, and we can maybe use that word, being concerned of getting sick and bringing sickness to your family is, is valid. Something you should, as a responsible human being, think about. Wearing a mask, washing your hands, these are all things that we all should be doing. There's no reason to think that they aren't helping. There's no reason to think that they are harming anyone. But what is harmful is the fear. You shouldn't be afraid. No one should be afraid of anything because fear is an incorrect response. It's just invalid. It's improper. It's useless, harmful, crippling, debilitating. 
So be mindful of the fear. You know, it would be a challenge, but just say afraid, afraid, worried, worried. When you're thinking about it, say thinking. And none of these things imply that you have to get rid of the thought, the concern, or even the fear. Because our practice is not even getting rid of the stuff that's a problem. It's about seeing it and understanding it. What's going to make you free from fear is becoming so uh, familiar with the process of getting afraid that you realize that you, you really realize, not just intellectually, but you show yourself, almost like showing a child. You just show yourself again and again until you're your mind just gets it and you see that fear is not a proper response it's a, just a changing of, of habit you have the habit to respond in a certain way you just see it clearly and the habit starts to change Would you be willing to provide a brief refresher on when to note sitting and touching during the sitting meditation? My noting feels a bit imprecise, and I feel like I'm not doing it right. You should note sitting when you know you're sitting and touching when you know the mind is touching the spot. That's all. If, you, if it feels imprecise, if you feel like you're not doing it right, that's more likely something you have to note itself. Note those feelings, note that concern, worry, doubt, because that's what it's trying to show you. You can't control your mind and that your mind reacts to, to prompt to things like this as though they're problems. They're not actually a problem. It's like we've, it's like you're a, you're a lab rat and we've given you something to do and now we want to examine your behavior, but it's not me, it's you examining yourself. You're the lab rat, you're the scientist. So you want to see what happens when you do this experiment. The experiment itself isn't actually, it's not like you get a reward if you put, if you do it exactly right. We're interested in seeing how you respond because that's what's really important. These are just all placeholders for the rest of your life. Everything else you do in life is going to give you similar responses because that's how the mind works. It, it has habits of responding, habits of reaction. Do you have advice for feeling like there's nothing to do during your day? Sometimes I just end up falling into entertainment, sloth, seeking out stimulation for large portions of my day out of boredom. I mean, none of those things are are really immoral, so it's not something you have to worry about. I mean, sometimes, I was talking about this on the pornography masturbation uh, question. I mean, it's not evil in Buddhism. It's not sin. It's just, you know, technically unwholesome. But anything, when you like food that you eat, that's unwholesome as well. It's just, that's just who we are. None of it is considered to be a real problem in Buddhism. It's just the kind of thing that, okay, on a deep level, it's a problem. And it is a problem when you're serious about the path. But the, the point of saying what I just said is that we get so people get so feeling guilty about these things. They feel guilty, 
People feel guilty when they eat too much or when they engage in in sensuality, sexuality, and so on. And you shouldn't. That causes more problems than than simply you know dealing with it. It's good to know that these things are ultimately a dead end because that sort of limits your willingness to engage in them. But it's not good to f- to feel to hate yourself because you do these things. So don't be too concerned about being being lazy. I mean, on the one t- in 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 one sense, I mean, this is Buddhists in general, Buddhist monks especially get get the reputation of being lazy because we're not really interested in. Um, getting involved in the rat race, but I don't think anyone should. I don't think we should be working nearly as much as we are. If you ever go to um, more less developed countries, so to, so they say, some people you meet, like I met people in in Thailand and Sri Lanka who just some people would call them incredibly lazy, but but they fit so well. I don't think anyone ever would because. They're very poor, um, but they're also just watching their rice grow, basically, or watching their coconut trees or, or the rubber trees grow. They don't. They don't. They don't work like rats, you know. So, so in in to the extent you're talking about laziness, we become so conditioned to feel guilty and to reprimand people for being lazy and not being. Um, what's the word? Um, whatever it is that means when you work a lot. But uh, to some extent, that's the problem, where we get too caught up in in making sure that we're doing something and working. Mindfulness works best when you are idle, when you are alone and unstimulated. So that doesn't address the whole entertainment, seeking out stimulation. Um, But again, that's just a part of the path. The first step on the path is not to overcome all of that. The first step on the path is to see clearly that that and all the other things that you do, all of our desires and aversions are not going to cause us not going to bring us happiness to see that none of these things are really under our control and to just, well, just basically see clearly about reality, about our body and our minds, to see what the nature of reality is. That's the first step and it's a very important, it's the most important step. Just to see things as they are. You're not going to change everything, not not in, not in the beginning. But what you can change is your view, your perception of things. Try and see things in a different light. And see things just as they are. While I usually manage to have some detachment with what arises, I once craved for the alarm clock to ring so much that I found myself fantasizing about hurting myself. What's that? Hmm. Well, that's craving, wanting. But the wanting probably also comes from an aversion. You have to look and see what's... We say you want for the alarm clock to ring, but what's really going on? 
Is there something you'd rather be doing? You want to do that? Or is there an aversion to what's happening in the sitting? Like the anxiety, the agitation, the restlessness? You really have to see, you have to answer that question for yourself. What is it? What is going on? But when you're thinking about hurting yourself, that's just thoughts. Those things arise in all sorts of instances. If you react to the thought you like or dislike or are afraid of the thought or whatever, you should note that as well. Just try and be mindful of whatever comes. Try and break it down into the moments. What's happening at this moment? If there's a lot of things happening, just find something something clear, whatever's clearest, and note that. If your meditation gets shut, cut short by some obligation and ends up at one hour walking or 30 minutes walking, for example, later on, should you make up the time missed to even out the walking and sitting? Ends up at one hour walking. Do you mean one hour walking, 30 minutes sitting? I think you've got a mistake there. I'm assuming you mean one hour walking, 30 minutes sitting. Then yeah, it makes sense to even it out. I mean, this isn't this isn't a an exact science, right? This is, these are just tools. So it would make sense to do a little more sitting later. But you could also just start with walking later. Depends how you feel, really. Also, if you're doing a lot of walking during the day, you might want to do a little more sitting meditation because you've done a lot of walking already, especially if you're walking mindfully. In the at-home course, we require a minimum of half an hour walking, half an hour sitting per day, but and those should be done walking and sitting together, some in the morning, some in the evening. Total of one hour, half walk, what, 30, total of 30 minutes walking, total of 30 minutes sitting. But beyond that, and outside of that course, it's reasonable to accommodate your schedule. How should I approach noting while thinking intellectually, getting lost in concepts on my computer? You can't, uh, technically. I mean, technically, when you're doing something else with your mind, you're not being mindful, you see. But there's always, it's, it's a momentary thing, and there's always going to be moments in between the intellectual activity, and there's going to be breaks you take. So you should be mindful of that. In, during the time you're being engaging in an intellectual activity, try and find time when you're reacting to things, if you're angry or frustrated or liking something, disliking something, etc. Try and take that as a moment to be mindful. Stop, take a break. And further, take breaks, like full breaks, from, from the activity every so often where you go off and do some meditation or just try and sit mindfully. Those are two really good things to do.
Is there no utility to suffering? And does one have to be in a meditative state all the time in order to truly overcome all suffering? So practically, there technically there's no utility to suffering, but practically there's a great utility to suffering. It being can be a great catalyst. And practically speaking, it's one of the main reasons, probably the main reason why people start to develop themselves mentally because they have the question how can i better myself so i don't suffer if a person doesn't isn't suffering that question that that drive to fix things won't arise that drive to find a solution is it because suffering intense suffering is a is an occasional thing and because it's occasional it's possible for someone to go their whole life or much of their life totally oblivious to the potential but when it comes then they have to they have to confront this they have to they have to face it and and ask themselves the tough question of what do i do now how do i deal with this so practically suffering is of great benefit it forces us to sit up and ask the important questions but technically what you have to see and and on an ultimate level is that all this suffering that we do is all pointless and useless. That's an important part of the meditation as well. But that that's the result. That's not what that's not where we start at. Often when I get distracted during walking, by the time I note stopping and standing, the distraction has changed or is gone. How should I handle this? You can say knowing and just start walking again. See, what you've done there is you've learned that everything is impermanent, nothing lasts, so you're good to start walking again. If you walk home, is it okay to immediately do sitting meditation instead of starting with walking? Can you talk about how important walking meditation is before sitting it's okay to do that as i said because you've done a lot of walking and if you were doing it mindfully that would be an especial a special reason uh, i would recommend if you're walking home to walk home mindfully if that's what you intend to do but walking meditation is different right it's not actually walking it's the awareness of a movement and there's single movements and it's formalized and it's repetitive, so it forces us to confront our minds in a way that ordinary walking doesn't. So it still has great benefit. The other thing is it, it's it's a way to ease yourself into the sitting because of because it's movement, uh, because it's a little less focused and immediate and and intense. And so it's a really good thing to do before you do sitting meditation. That's why we recommend doing it first. It, it gives you a sort of a, con, a prepared, prepared state of mind. It prepares you for the, for the sitting. Preparation is what I was trying to say. Sometimes I meditate for four hours a day. I live with my parents, and I feel worried and strange closing myself in my room. How I behave is strange to them, and to me, 
what to do. There's not a lot you can do. I mean, eventually get get over the worry, and uh, you, you as you get more truly mindful, which takes time, you you'll find yourself more comfortable around them, and they'll feel like you're a little bit less strange. But they'll also accommodate as well. You know, part of it is them coming to understand the goodness of it, but part of that is you actually gaining something from it, and that can take time. I mean, you're, you're gaining constantly, but gain something that's visible to others to actually fun you know deeply change your 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 uh, personality for the better sometimes people don't even see that because they like you the way you used to be you were more fun before more exciting before but that's just hard for people to appreciate goodness unless they themselves are also committed to it. And so I'm not trying to say that Buddhism has a stranglehold on goodness. It's just that's the idea here. When you see clearly, you become a better person, more inclined towards things that lead to happiness. And that's hard for people who are accustomed to more conventional ways of finding pleasure and, and so-called happiness. All right, we're at the one hour mark, so at this point we go with only questions that are tier one, that, that need an answer. So the, the, if, you're, if you're wondering what sort of questions we're answering, answering here, the questions that are being asked are, 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 are being categorized. And I've instructed people that top tier is questions that need answers. They should be related to Buddhism and hopefully meditation, but... They're the ones that it seems like this person really has an issue and, and an answer is really going to help them. At the opposite end of the spectrum is questions that aren't about Buddhism, aren't about meditation, and are just about curiosity or theory or, or speculation. So in between, we've got other tiers. So if it's about med meditation, it may get a higher uh, value, value label, but don't just... You know, don't just think that if you mention meditation, somehow the question's going to be asked. It's more about the importance of the question for the person. Is this a question that really needs an answer? All right, so are there any of those left? There's a few more, yeah. All right, so no more questions. Please don't post any more. Now you can say what you want in chat. Moderators will not, are instructed not to delete things now unless they're out of line mean or mean-spirited or that is sort there, of thing. Okay, go ahead. Is there any way where I can directly write to you, Bonte, to help me handle one traumatic event in my life, which I have not been able to get over for three years, even though I've been practicing Vipassana? So I would recommend um, signing up for an at-home course. If you haven't read the booklet, read the booklet. If you've done that, to sign up for an at-home course. And if you do that, if you've read the booklet, and if you sign up for a at-home course, the first meeting, you can ask me all the questions you want. But let's say it's going to take that much dedication. Because I'm, I'm absolutely open to answering those sorts of questions. But I would say the, the only way I, I can really be of support 
is if you're interested in doing a course. If you've already done the at-home course, and this is someone who I know I'm talking to, then yes, you can message me and uh, we can see about getting in touch. So if that's the case, um, contact, you can even contact the organization, they'll let me know. Contact through the website. If one feels a negative emotion, such as anger, should they note the thing making them feel that emotion or the emotion itself? You should note whatever's clearest. It doesn't matter. Whichever one is clear, note that, because it's going to come back again and again, right? It's going to, it, these are habits, so you're always going to have an opportunity, and, and you shouldn't concern yourself about having to note the right thing. Note whatever's clearest or whatever's clear. You don't even have to think too much about which it is. How can one manage numbness on the legs while you meditate after 15 minutes of sitting? You don't have to manage it. It's not going to be a problem. Just be mindful of it and let it go. How can I begin my meditation? So I'm not sure what you mean by that, but in general, to begin meditation, it would be to read our booklet, and if you're really interested, to do an at-home course. That, I mean, that's really the answer, because if you'd read the booklet, you'd know my answer to that question, I think. Otherwise, you might have to be a little more specific. But I recommend considering read the booklet and maybe even sign up for a course. It's all free. We don't charge for anything, so money-back guarantee. What is the best way to cure apathy states during the daytime? I don't know if you've read the booklet, but the booklet should address that. What is a proper attitude toward food? How may we cultivate it? How can one apply the three characteristics to food? Okay, I don't think, I don't know where we've gone now, but this isn't, this doesn't seem like top tier. I'm not, I'm not, in, not going to answer that question. I don't think it's a little bit um, intellectual. I'd recommend you to read the booklet and that should help you deal with things like eating Food isn't really the, well, it's, I mean, it's an interesting Buddhist question like, intellectually, but this is more about meditation practice, so I'd recommend to read the booklet and maybe sign up for a course. We can talk about it then. All right, are we done? That's the end of the questions. Okay, thank you, Olivia. And Chris and Max, we've got a team now. This is our first experiment. So I wish you all a good night. Thank you all for your questions. A good group. Sadhu. Sadhu. You can say hello as well, Max and Chris, if you're still there. Sadhu, thank you, Bhante. Sadhu, thank you. Thank you all.